Hello, welcome to Interdependent Study, our podcast where we engage in the learning and unlearning work for social justice and collective liberation. I'm Damien. And I'm Aaron. Thank you so much for joining us today. For those new to our podcast, Interdependent Study is meant to be a space and community for folks who believe in and want to do the work of social justice. Each week, we'll bring something new to the table and discuss our thoughts and feelings about it through the lenses of who we are and where we think we can go for a more just society. We want Interdependent Study to be a space where we're always learning with one another. And Aaron is up this week. What mm-hmm. have you brought to the table today, my friend? Um, I've brought a book called How We Get Free, um, edited by Dr. Kianga Yamada-Taylor, um, who, if you recall, uh, we talked about a few weeks ago, right here on this, this little show of ours. Um, we read an interview that she participated in, and now the tables have turned a little bit, and we are reading a book um, that mostly is Dr. Taylor interviewing other people. Yep. Um, so this book is centered around the Combahee River Collective Statement, uh, which was released in 1977 and is a standout moment for establishing um, their vision for what black feminism could be. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, the context at the time that the authors of the statement outlined throughout the statement, um, but also gets illuminated more in th- throughout the book, uh, is that, you know, white women were leading libera- women's liberation groups uh, in ways that ignored the needs of black women. Yep. And then black liberation groups were leading in a patriarchal way and ignoring black women. Um, So the book, uh, so this statement kind of addresses that and what a black feminist uh, vision for politics could look like. Um, Yeah, so the book is organized uh, into um, an introduction from Dr. Taylor, the statement itself from 1977, uh, and then some interviews. So three interviews with the core organizers uh, of the Combahee River, three of the core organizers, there were more of them. Um, But Barbara Smith, Beverly Smith, and Demita Frazier, uh, who had significant role in in authoring the statement. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then the book also includes an interview with Alicia Garza, known for helping to establish Black Lives Matter as a global network. Yep. Uh, and then a speech from Bar- Barbara Rainsby um, to close it out. So, yeah, there's a lot in here to talk yeah. about. Uh, and I'm excited to see where our conversation goes. Yeah, me too. I think, like, this was an absolutely incredible read, right? I yeah. I loved everything about this book from the interviews you just mentioned with, like, those originators or some of the originators of the Combahee River Collective's work. Um, to particularly that interview with Alicia Garza, right? Because she's out here just doing incredible work right now. Like those interviews were were fantastic and sort of really illuminating, right? Um, in terms of uh, what the uh, what their work was about and what it meant to them and how they got uh, to where they were, right? Um, and so I loved that. And then you know, t- to actually getting to read the the statement itself, which you know I actually yep. only learned about as a result of sort of the work that we've been doing here in the podcast. Like I had I had never heard of this, of the Combahee River Collective or or the statement that they wrote back in as you said 1977. So um, I love that. You know I learned something here. Hope folks did too. Um, and so uh, that was great to read. And I'm looking forward to sort of spending more time with that statement because uh, I think it's it's incredible and has some mm-hmm. some real life application to today which I'm sure we'll we'll talk about. So yeah, I'm excited to talk about this book today and it's it's really hard to think about where to start. Um but you know as you mentioned uh, Dr. Taylor wrote this incredible introduction and I think it really like if you 
if you read nothing else, that would be silly. Uh, but you, you definitely should read the introduction because I think she does a really great job in sort of spelling out the Combahee River Collective's work, right, and the impact of mm-hmm. their work, um, sort of including sort of like the the history and, and values and beliefs that sort of guided, you know, what they uh, intended to do and sort of the vision that they had for uh, black women in this country and, and you know, black women in politics and liberation, right? Um, and in a lot of ways, that introduction did a great job of sort of summarizing what was in the statement itself. Um, and so I think there's some really powerful and important stuff there. Um, I, I think at the core is this idea that the Combahee River Collective believed that if we could free the most oppressed people in society, then we would have to free everyone. Yeah. Right. And they believe that the most oppressed people in our society were black women. And, you know, this book was actually published, what, 40 years after the release yep. of that statement. Mm-hmm. And I think it's clear from all of the interviews, even though that, you know, the, this book came out what, four years ago at this point. Um, I think it's clear that those women in those interviews and even Dr. Taylor as well. Right. S- still kind of believe that to be still true today. Right. Yeah. And I think you can see that, um, you know, beyond the women interviewed in the book, believing it to be true is, is that it is true, right? Like right. as a, you know, speaking for myself as a, a white guy, whatever kind of harm that I experienced from white supremacist, capitalist, imperialist patriarchy, which is a, a big system that for the most part was uh, designed to benefit people like me. Mm-hmm. Um, but whatever harm I do experience from that would be gone, right? If black women, black women were liberated. Yes. Um, and so it's absolutely still relevant today. Yeah. Um, so yeah, um, so let's let's jump in and talk a little bit about the actual statement itself. Yeah, okay. Um, so, you know, to be honest, a few weeks ago, I was considering just bringing this statement hmm. um, without the book, and then we read that interview with Dr. Taylor. Yeah, um, and I was like, well, this seems apropos now just to bring the whole book. Absolutely, because so, she's great, and her writing was fantastic, right? And sort of her mm-hmm. thinking and her thought, you know, are are are, are wonderful, right? So yeah, I yep. love that. Um, so yeah, I, just a little fun fact, I guess. Um, but the first thing I highlighted in the statement um, that I think just lays out the vision of the statement uh, really well is, I think it's in the first like section. It's the first paragraph or something. Um, but this is what it says. The most general statement of our politics at the present time would be that we are actively committed to struggling against racial, sexual, heterosexual, and class oppression. And see... As our particular task, the development of integrated analysis and practice based upon the fact that the major systems of oppression are interlocking. Woo. Right? And so that says a whole lot pretty quickly. Yeah. Uh, and outlines really, in my opinion, this idea of um, their vision for what collective liberation could look like. Yep. Right? It notes that oppression is interlocking, that it's all connected. Yep. Uh, So any fight for liberation needs to be interconnected through solidarity, right? So women's liberation cannot happen without black liberation, which cannot happen without class liberation and so on. And so, you know, they say this basically a few pages later. Um, They say, we are not convinced that a socialist revolution that is not also a feminist and anti-racist revolution Mm. will guarantee our liberation. And I think that those couple things in the whole statement really are... um, is super important and it's why we're still talking about the statement 44 years ago today and why this book was was written and published for the 40th anniversary 
yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And I love sort of the the connections that Dr. Taylor makes and sort of, you know, really sort of spelling out. And I think she does this in some of the interviews too, right? Talking about this idea of interlocking, right? Oppression, mm-hmm. right? And sort of the that being the uh, sort of where uh, some of this work that we talk about now with intersectionality, right? And Kimberly Crenshaw's work was sort of born from, right? Mm-hmm. Um, or sort of the sort of the early iterations of, of, of that, right? And so we see over and over again how this is important um, and how these and how and how and why uh, the connectedness of race, gender uh, and sex are are key to be thinking about when we're talking about liberation. So I yeah, I think that that quote that you read really was sort of right out the gate uh, from the beginning. And so that set a tone uh, and I, I appreciated that and it hooked me. I think there was another statement or I think Dr. Taylor may have referred to it as a slogan um, that stood out to me from the statement, and it was, the personal is political, right? And I think that's such a powerful phrase, too, when you really sort of break it down and think about it. I think it, like, it clearly articulates why black f- feminism exists and and what black feminists and, and organizations like the Combahee River Collective or, you know, even the work that Alicia's doing with, you know, the Movement for Black Lives and, and you know, Black Lives Matter and all of that you know, all of those organizations, right, what they're trying to do, right? And so Mm -hmm. I I think it's a powerful phrase because in the case of black women, right, as you sort of alluded to, right, it speaks to the oppression that they experience on the basis of their identity, their race, gender, class, sexual orientation, right? And the, the many ways that their multiple identities open them up to this overlapping oppression, right? And, and exploitation, Right. And so there's sort of that piece. And then when you layer with that, right, or sort of examine that oppression through, you know, the various lenses in our society, capitalism, patriarchy, poverty, um, sexual assault and violence, right, that occurs, um, health, our healthcare system, right, our politics, yeah. mm-hmm. right? Like, I think to me, black feminists and, and, and this collective, you know, make it crystal clear how the personal is political, right? Yeah. And so I think that's really a, a huge piece of this um, that I wanted to sort of name um, because that stood out to me from this book. I I also think that this notion that the personal is political is is obviously still incredibly relevant today, right? Because I it, I think it speaks to why anti-racism and social justice education is so important, right? Mm-hmm. You know, and and it and and that sort of made me think about some of the recent conversations, really a lot of our conversations that we have here, um, but particularly some of the conversations that we have have had around this ongoing conservative nonsense and these attacks on this kind of work, right? And education that I think we we have to continue to resist and and fight against. Um, so yeah, the the personal is political. I think is one of the most profound pieces of text and um that i i appreciate most from the statement yeah because it applies in so many ways right like you think about the the day-to-day decisions that we make are tied into politics mm-hmm. right in in these systems uh in a lot of ways the the you know from healthcare as you mentioned to housing to, like all of those things are um the choices that we have available to us are based on the political structures that we live within. Right? Yeah. Um, right. So, well, and there's that too, right? So there's this mm-hmm. piece about thinking about it from that, that level, right? The 10,000 foot view or whatever, right? Our politics, our systems, our structures. But I also think there is some of this at play that we all can examine as we interact with in our personal relationships with black women too. Right. And the ways in which we may be 
sort of perpetuating some of this, right? You talk about sort of patriarchy and systems, and, you know, and, yeah. and those sorts of things, right? And so, um, and I think a lot of that comes through in some of the the interviews with those women, right? And those mm-hmm. feminists, right? And sort of their personal experiences with, you know, racism and sexism. And, um, you know, I think they talk really eloquently about those things. And so I also wanted to name that too. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think the, you know, and it's not, you're right, it's not just the decisions that we make, but it's the decisions that are made for us or the things that happen to us are also yes. tied into all of those things. Yeah. Um, yeah. So um, another piece of this statement that stands out to me is this quote from um, one section. I forget where we're from, but um, we have a great deal of criticism and loathing for what men have been socialized to be in the mm. society, what they support, how they act and how they oppress. But we do not have the misguided notion that it is their maleness per se, i.e. their bi- biological maleness that makes them they are. I'm glad you, uh, this stood out to me too. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I think this, this feels important because unlike a lot of, um, I think some of the, the backlash that we've talked about from conservatives and whatnot, um, is that they're not making a deterministic argument, right? Like right. they're making the opposite. Um, and they're naming that the systems that we are all sort of living in create some conditions in which we then act in certain ways right yes um and so you know they're saying that men are essentially deployed by patriarchy to be oppressive and to uphold that system in certain ways so it's you know it's not about men innately being oppressive or automatically buying into patriarchal norms is that these norms exist and create for us men yep. uh power that we then take advantage of and use and however um, that plays out for us on the day to day. Right. Um, and I think that, you know, we can tie this into what happens with white folks, um, and what happens with the owning class and what happens with all people who find themselves in the top, uh, part of an oppressive hierarchy. Right. Yeah. Um, because these higher, these systems create these hierarchies. Uh, and so, you know, and then these we see that these systems of oppression, as they say, are interlocking, um, and so they combine to create new oppressions for people in different ways based on, um, you know, where you fall on those hierarchies and mm-hmm. the different ways and the different systems. Um, but we can see that they kind of indoctrinate people into believing that yes. they that the the systems themselves are natural rather than dynamics created out of violence and you know sort of basically like cultural norms. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I was hoping you would get, you're getting to that place around indoctrination, right? Because I think that mm-hmm. plays a huge role in this. And um, yeah, I, that that piece stood out to me. It also took me back to when we talked about what The World of Change by Bell Hooks, right? Yep. And we talked about masculinity. And I think we both sort of tried to dive a little deep into sort of our um, experiences as men, right? And, and being in these systems and growing up in these systems, right? And patriarchy, right? And what that means. So I love their perspective on... Right. Like we have this criticism of this system. Right. And the ways in which men have been socialized into this. Right. Mm-hmm. Like it is not serving any of us. And I think that's part of what Bell Hooks talked about, too. Right. Like it is not serving any of us. And it's it's, it's especially not serving men. Right. And that was sort of what Bell Hooks was talking about. Um, but for them, right, they're focused on focusing on black women. And so, um, yeah, I I absolutely I highlighted that part. I think we need to you know, we should spend some time talking more about that, right? And mm-hmm. what that means as we, you know, do this liberation work. So 
Uh, yeah, I appreciate that. I think, you know, the statement itself has so much in it, right? It's a, it's a few pages. I think we both read this on a Kindle, right? It's a few pages in that Kindle, but um, it's it's profound in so many ways. The The statement itself is broken up into these four sections, right? So the first one is called Genesis of Contemporary Black Feminism. The second is called What We Believe. The third is Problems in Organizing Black Feminists. And the last is Black Feminist Issues and Projects, right? And then, and as I said, I think there's so much in the statement, right? So I'm, I'm curious to hear what else stood out to you from it. Um, I, I think the work that they did throughout the statement to sort of name the fact that black women in this country have had this ongoing life and death struggle with, as we talked about earlier, interlocking oppressions, right, and with the political systems in this country. Um, and the work they did to name black women's ongoing struggle for survival and liberation, right, despite the fact that, you know, black women are human beings, right, that deserve dignity and humanity and, and power and access to power, um, right? And and I think there was, there's just incredible value and wisdom in this idea of how important it is to combat the systems and structures and conditions where race and sex and class, and, and certainly we know that there are other dimensions of, of our identities that play a role in this as well, right? Mm -hmm. Like just thinking like about ability as one, right? And so, right, we, we certainly know that there are other, um, that these things exist as as simultaneous factors in oppression right like yep all of that that is woven throughout this statement it, it was powerful to me right and so um i i had to really sort of i think i read the statement at least four times right and i think there's so much in it particularly as a as a black man but also as someone who just places a high value on the fact that we all deserve dignity and recognition of our humanity. I've, I've talked about that multiple times here, right? Yep. Um, right. To see that these conditions still exist for black women in this country all these years later, right? Like that's, it's a lot to sort of wrap my head around it. And, and I, there's some tremendous sadness there when I think about it, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so uh, I, it's, it's why I believe in this work and why I'm, you know, deeply committed to it. Yeah, I think the... Um it's it's um, a lot to think about and reflect on how and why this statement is so true today. Um, yeah. Even while taking in some of the things that they, that uh, as you get into the interviews, um, some of the things that the the folks are talking about that they were organizing against in uh, the seventies, the sixties yeah. and the seventies um, are not quite the same conditions today, right? Yeah. Like in terms of um, some access to sort of uh, reproductive health care for, yep. for women and stuff. Uh, but that stuff is also being attacked and rolled back at the same time. So yep. there, there's definitely like things that are, um, have shifted. Yeah. Uh, but in a lot of ways it's being rolled back mm. um, and, and attacked. And, you know, not that much progress has been made in the first place. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it's, it's um, I think pretty frustrating to think and to sit and think of like, oh, we're, you know, 44 years yeah. um, past the statement and how much of this is still like directly applicable Yeah. Um, in terms of like the sort of individual, not indiv the, the like personal experiences that black women have yeah. that are kind of outlined in the statement. Um, I also think like, you know, sort of zooming out and taking that 10,000 foot view. One of the things that I really um, appreciate about the statement is how 
the vision for it then still applies now, yes. right? Um, and one yes. of the things that I really thought was super powerful was the way that solidarity clearly led the way for mm -hmm. the collective. Mm -hmm. um, you know, Barbara Smith said in her interview, the only way that we can win and before winning, the only way we can survive is by working with each other and not seeing each other as enemies. Yes. And this is a key point. And it led the yeah. way for, you know, it was, a, it was a deep value for the collective. Uh, and they lived it through their actions as a collective. So in the interviews, we see some of the stories of the way that the collective gathered together to picket with workers who were on strike. Mm -hmm. And they supported a doctor who had performed a, a legal abortion after Roe v. Wade. Um but was tried for it. He was charged and tried for a crime for that. Yep. Um, and so they were doing real work and part of the statement, the statement was also a piece of that real work to lay out what their vision was. Um, so yeah, I, and you know, the solidarity piece also for me is outlined by, they talk about the history of originally starting as a chapter of the national black feminist organization. Yes. I think I got that. Uh, acronym correct, MBFO. Mm -hmm. um, and they decided that it wasn't um, it wasn't enough for them. Like it wasn't yeah. doing quite what they thought we should be doing in terms of, or they should be doing in terms of like solidarity work um, across class. And it was a little, um, yeah, it was, it was a little classist in the yeah. way that they were doing stuff. Yeah. Um, and so solidarity was tied into like them even sort of splintering off from that and doing, uh, creating their own collective uh, outside of that. So, you know, I think this solidarity politics is super important. Um, and you can still see some of this outlined in the ways that, um, you know, the, there's a book that came out this year uh, called The Some of Us. Yeah. Um, and there's a, you know, the author suggests that Heather McGee, um, she suggests that the way that we sort of move forward out of these systems is through solidarity yeah. and there being a sort of solidarity dividend when that pays off for everybody when we are in alignment with one another and can see that we're not enemies right then we start to win we start to move past just surviving to like winning things for all of us that are going to help us all lead better lives absolutely well and it's really it's a shame to even think about the idea that like survival is the thing right like even in yeah in this year, the year of 2021, right? We're talking about the notions of people just surviving, um, right? Uh, we have got to push past that, right? Being sort of the, being sort of even in our vernacular when we're talking about this kind of work, right? People should be yep. able to be thriving, right? And mm -hmm. in, in, in some ways, in some uh, spheres, we're talking about just survival. So yeah, I, I appreciate that. And I appreciate sort of the interconnectedness of all of this, right? Mm -hmm. In this work, absolutely. Yeah. Um, all right. So let's let's shift a little bit. Um, talk about application here, all maybe. Right. Um, so one of the things I'm taking away from application here is another quote, um, and it's from the Barbara Rainsby speech at the end of the book. Mm. Um, so good. Yeah. And this. So this is what she said: the statement and the practice that surrounded it debunks the notion that so-called identity politics represents a narrowing rather than a broadening of our collective political vision. The document is anti-racist, anti-capitalist, anti-imperialist, and anti-heteropatriarchy. That is the CRC's black feminist agenda. Mm. Uh, and I think that this, you know, this quote outlines how the statement is f fully applicable to our day-to-day -day lives yes. still. 
um, we're working toward liberation, um, you know, collectively. Uh, and we have to see how our collective liberation is interconnected, right? Yes. That's why it's collective liberation, yeah, right? It like it's all, it's all interconnected. And we have to see that centering the experiences of people who are most impacted by systems of oppression is a way to broaden our perspective on how we can continue to help liberate everybody. Yep. Um, it broadens our work. It's a way to make sure that our steps toward liberation aren't leaving anyone out because then it's not actually liberation. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it makes me think about, you know, this idea of our, you know, our our political system, right? If, if, if folks were actually sitting in the seats of power that they are, um, you know, in, in Congress, in the Senate, right. And could actually think about real policies and laws. And again, as you say, center the experiences of black women, right. And center the experiences of our most marginalized folks, right. Mm -hmm. Um, and figure out what do they need to, again, not just survive, what do they need to thrive? Um, Imagine where we might be. Mm-hmm. Imagine where we might be. Yeah, um, absolutely. I, I love that. I love that. So there's there's real, real life, present day applicability of all of this, as you say. Um, you know, when I was thinking about application, I uh, was reminded a little bit about something I said earlier, and and you know that's the and we've said this before, we've said this uh, a number of times, right? That this book came out 40 years after the original Combahee River Collective Statement was published, right? Yep. Um, 40 years. So um, the fact that this is still relevant today, right, that so many of the issues and conditions and um, and things that, that surrounded and impacted the lives of black women when this statement was written still exist, you know, in some shape or form today, right? And so um, I think the I think the crux of this statement and of black feminism being firm about this idea that black women deserve space and liberation uh, is, is absolutely the application. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and many of the women, I think particularly Alicia Garza talk about this idea of women, just black women deserve space. And I, and I don't know why that, that resonated so deeply with me. Um, I think for me, this book and everything in it, uh, you know, sort of stokes the desire I have again to see the the dignity and humanity of of marginalized people and especially Black women affirmed, right? And I hope that that rings true for others as well. And if you get the chance to read this, I highly encourage you to do so, right? Uh, I hope it does that for you too, right? Um, I think there's lots of application in our need to use the beliefs and values and, and charges that, you know, are sort of laid out in the Combahee River Collective Statement as a guiding force in our in our present day movement and liberation work as well. So, yeah. Yeah, I think that that is the um, that's the point of the book, really, yep. is that like this statement's still relevant for so many reasons today. Um, and yeah, I encourage folk, I've encouraged sort of everybody to read it um, who's, you know, even tangentially interested in um you know anti-sexist work anti-racist yeah. work um just check it out you can you can google combahee river collective statement and you'll you will find it yeah the statement is just out there on the on the net yeah in the web um all right um great stuff so let's talk about a little bit about homework all right uh, my homework this week is to learn more about kitchen table um, ah. which is discussed in the book yeah uh, as an important piece of um, history and radical publishing particularly for black feminism yeah tell the people it's a it's a publishing house right yeah so it's a publishing house that was led by some of the women from the Combahee River Collective yeah um, and so I just want to read more about it learn more about that that publishing um, house I guess is is the right I thing think so right yeah, yeah. Uh, it was super independent and they they just sort of uh started publishing stuff that 
they felt like wasn't getting accepted at other uh, publishing houses that were dedicated to feminism, right? Yeah. Um, and so I want to um, read, learn more about that, but I also want to read a little bit more from Barbara and Beverly Smith and Demita Frazier because uh, they're really just uh, fantastic people yeah. um, who I want to continue to learn from. Absolutely. I ah, yeah. Yeah. I, I, I appreciate and, and love that you uh, named... Uh, kitchen table. Um, mm-hmm. I it, it slipped my mind. So that's really great homework, right? So mm-hmm. we should look them up and, and see what's out there and, and, and support them and um, some of the things that they've published. Um, that's great. I, I there's there's lots of things that could be homework here, right? I, I especially loved all those interviews that Dr. Taylor had with Barbara Smith and Beverly Smith and Demita Frazier and Alicia Garza, right? And so I think there's a lot to learn from these women, um, these black feminists, these activists, right? Mm-hmm. Um, as we continue to have these conversations, as we continue to do this work, you know, and as we 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 try to make or influence or vote our way to, uh, you know, real, real change in our society. So, um, I'm with you. I want to read more of their stuff. I, I want to learn more from them. Um, there's in, at the end of the book, there's, what do you call those autobiography biographies of all of the, yeah, yeah. not autobiographies, biographies of, um, all of those women. And, uh, in the section about Barbara Smith, uh, it's mentioned about there's a book that came out in 2014 that was edited by Alethea Jones and Virginia Eubanks, and it's called Ain't Gonna Let Nobody Turn Me Around, 40 Years of Movement Building with Barbara Smith. And so um, I particularly appreciated and, and enjoyed her interview. Yeah. Um, and so I'd love to just read that book because I'm sure that there's more of just great learning and inspiration uh, in this book as well. Yeah, definitely. And I think so one of the things I'll add to here is that um, – we talked, we clearly didn't talk about all of the book at yeah. all. Like just to clarify um, for any of you folks out there listening, um, there's a lot in there in the interviews um, that tell some of the stories of the experiences of Barbara Smith, Beverly Smith, Demita Frazier, um, and Alicia Garza too. Um, and, uh, you know, are just really illuminating in terms of like what they personally experienced yes. and, and their own personal history of um, particularly Barbara Smith, Beverly Smith and Demita Frazier becoming sort of black feminists and right. And, right um, and what led them to the Combahee River Collective. So that's like their, their personal story, their educational backgrounds, like yes. literally everything, the jobs that they've had, the right. careers that they, yeah. So it gets into all that. And so um, that's really also interesting history too. I think as I think about it, like, you know, what are the things that we do that lead us to what, to the work that we do? Yeah. Right. Um, and so, uh, that is, um, that's also a really cool part of, of reading these stories, um, is that there's more to it than like the statement. There's a lot of personal history of, of how, um, you know, this is really like a, um, uh, a, uh, was a thing you put in the ground and bury for a long time, <laughs> um, with a, like, oh, a time capsule? Yeah, or, it's a yeah, time yeah, capsule yeah. of, and, you know, a history of the Combahee River Collective in a lot of ways and why that statement's important. So, yeah. Um, and why this work, as you said, is deeply personal to them. And I, and I, it, the other thing I appreciate about those interviews is that they were raw. And I think you can tell that yeah. there is a, there's a, a, a good collegial, probably more than that in some cases, relationship that they each had. Um, in that setting with Dr. Taylor, yeah. right? That they yeah. felt sort of uh, comfortable in that space to be able to open up. I mean, some of them are cursing in their interview and right. just like, you know, 
reading some people and 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 our and our systems for filth, right? And yeah. I so there's a lot there that is so so good. And so I yeah I appreciate that idea of like understanding how people got to where they are and what inspires them and what motivates them. Yeah. yeah. So that's that's also a really cool piece of of the book too that I wanted to highlight before we um, close out because Damien, you are up next time. Hey. Um, so what do you bring to the table in our next episode? I am up next week. Awesome. All right. So next week I'm bringing a documentary to the table. Uh, it's called eyes on the prize hallowed ground. Uh, and it actually came out just a couple of months ago, uh, on HBO max. So folks can check it out there and watch it with us. Uh, but this film pays tribute to, I always want to say plays tribute, pays tribute, pay, you have to pay tribute, uh, to Henry Hampton's uh, PBS documentary back from the late 1980s. I think it was like 1987 and 1990 uh, that you know was called Eyes on the Prize. And that original documentary sort of chronicled the civil rights movement in this country. And so this new film both honors that original documentary and sort of shares a lot of pieces from it. Um, but it also ties in the current movement and liberation work that's happening in the country, right? To sort of tell the many stories of the black experience in this country, right? And so, you know, I, I have not watched the film yet, but I did watch the trailer. And I mean, for as just one small piece, the imagery, Aaron, in that yeah in the trailer and, and obviously in the, the film itself and the sets uh, that some folks are sitting in front of to be interviewed, right. Or the, the, the scrolling images that are behind them are, are, are breathtaking. Right. And yeah. so I'm looking forward to that, but um, I, I also think that there's just going to be so much to learn from this piece. And um, I think we're going to have a great, I hope we have a great conversation about it. I am sure we will. I'm looking forward to that. I've been wanting to watch that too, since it came out. Um, so Yeah. Great. Looking forward to that next week. Um, all right. Well, we want to thank you for joining us today and for listening to Interdependent Study. Uh, you know what I'm going to ask you to do, but uh, you might have forgotten. Uh, please follow, leave a rating, a review, share a podcast with the people in your life. Follow us on social media, include, including uh, we're now on YouTube. So you hey. can listen to full episodes of... Uh, interdependent study on YouTube uh, in the background of you know whatever else you might be doing. Yeah, we only have the la the first or the the most recent three episodes up as of the recording today. So we'll start adding um, things slowly and get to get to the, all the sort of back catalog that we have. Uh, but fun fact, yes. we're on YouTube now. So give us a subscription, a subscribe over there. Yeah. Um, and also sign up for our email list to get notified about any new things we've got going on behind the scenes. Absolutely. A little bit behind the curtain. Aaron did all that great work with yeah. the YouTube. So uh, I'm very much so grateful for it. And uh, yeah, check us out there. That's awesome. We're, uh, we're everywhere you are, uh, folks. So thanks mm -hmm. for listening. And remember, it's not about us, but it is about us. And we'll talk to you next week. Mm -hmm.